So there is uh, an emptiness to life without God that I think the movie Tombstone uh, captures very well. Has anybody seen the movie Tombstone? Who's seen it? Okay, so some people have seen it. it I, did, I found out how old I was, uh, looking that it was in 1993 that, I, that it was out. I was like, that's an old movie. It just feels like it was yesterday, and now it's in 1993, how time flies. And so it's one of, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, Tombstone is one of the greatest Westerns ever made. I know, I, I know I'm passing up Cleanest Wood. It's a little controversial, but man, this is a great movie. And you have Doc Holliday played by Val Kilmer and Wyatt Earp played by Kurt Russell. And there is this scene in there where they're talking about the main antagonist, the main bad guy, if you will, uh, Johnny Ringo, who is just this evil, wicked, nasty guy. And this is a dialogue. I want to read this to you to kind of show you the human predicament that many of us are in. Wyatt Earp asks Doc Holliday, what makes a man like Ringo, Doc? What makes him do the things he does? Doc Holliday says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right down the middle of him. He could never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it ever fill it. Now, I'm sure many of us are not like a psycho like Johnny Ringo. We don't want to steal and inflict pain on others. But see, many of us still do have that great big hole right down the middle of us. And we try to fill it with maybe more wholesome things, family, success, affirmation, money, stuff. And the more you fill it, the more you're starving and you're striving for more and more. That hole in you right down the middle in your heart, it never fills up no matter how much stuff you put in it. And just to give you another example of uh, the, the first, he was actually the first billionaire, uh, is John D. Rockefeller. He was asked by... Um, Reporter, how much money is enough money, John? You know, he says, just a little bit more. It's always just a little bit more and more. And uh, I'm quoting a very, you know, renowned scholar, Bane from Batman. It's like shipwrecked men who have uncontrollable thirst trying to satisfy it by drinking seawater. It's just never enough and it never satiates people. So we, we as human beings, we desire something greater than anything in this world. And that is why we try to fill the empty hole in our heart with things other than God, and yet we are continually left unsatisfied, continually left empty. I really love the way C.S. Lewis put it, writer of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He writes this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So you see, sin and otherworldly things may satisfy you for a moment. Affirmation may like make you feel good in the moment, but it never truly and ultimately satisfies you. I've experienced that myself. So we must look beyond something in this world and don't take my word for it. Take the great scholar Madonna. <laughs> this pastor's a little racy. Quoting pop stars here, huh? Very interesting. Um... Church lady would not like this. Madonna, right? Um, but she says, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But I feel that I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. 
My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. So you see, she has that right, that great big hole right down the middle of her heart, and no amount of unique or special success can ever fill it. She tries and tries and tries, but it's never enough. Reminds me of uh, the lyrics from The Greatest Showman, uh, is when that redhead lady is singing. It's, I love the lyrics of the song. So, and that's, by the way, I'm not a big musical guy. This is the only musical I like as a greatest showman, ironically. But says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the nightlight will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. So that is, a, that is a human problem here. I'm not just making this up. This is a, the great human predicament people, everybody faces. We constantly and restlessly are just so unsatisfied with everything. It shows up everywhere. It shows up in pop culture, in music, in literature, and it is also found in the greatest piece of literature ever written, the most, the, the most read piece of literature, or more than literature, it's God's Word, the Bible. This is what it says in Proverbs 27, 20. Hell and Abdon are never satisfied satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. So the question lingers. What is enough? What will satisfy us? What will fill that great big black hole in our heart right down the middle? And the answer is only Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. And the reason why I say this is because human beings, all of us, deep down inside, if we're having one of those more quiet moments in our life where we're not hearing the noise of the freeway, the noise of music, or whatever it is, when we're by ourselves, just, 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 just with ourselves, we know deep down inside every human being needs unconditional, unending, everlasting love and acceptance. We're being really honest and transparent with ourselves. And you see, it's only the God of the Bible that offers us this unconditional, eternal love and acceptance which we receive by faith and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if you think about it, we really do desperately long for love and acceptance. And some people think, you know, okay, you know, if I just get enough money and maybe if I just get enough people to like me and I just do enough stuff for people affirming me, maybe it will fill me up in that moment and but the problem is they always want more and more and so it doesn't solve any problems money or success or affirmation or love from people it never covers it and again the great theologian Jim Carrey <laughs> alrighty then you know he's not a great that was a joke yeah so most of you got that I think yeah so he puts it this way I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer that's him saying that so we know what the answer is. It's Christ, Jesus Christ. His unfading, unchanging, unconditional love for us. Now, we sometimes look to seemingly less destructive things, right? To satisfy these needs. Spouse, family, friends, church, pastors, leaders. But at the end of the day, all of these human beings, every single one of these human beings I just named off will fail you. They will let you down. And so the love of a human being is always imperfect. It isn't permanent. And most of the time, if we're really honest, it's profoundly conditional, especially if the person knew the thoughts you had in your head. Profoundly conditional. So that the one thing that will really get us right and it gets me right, honestly, is this unconditional, inseparable love that God has for us. Now, there are some people that says the Bible does not teach this. 
form of love. That, I, as I was taught as a kid, you know, if Jesus came back in the rapture and you were doing something bad, something naughty, to hell you go. You're going to hell. You're going to be judged and condemned. You better be good because you don't know when Jesus is coming back. And if you're doing, you're not on the right side when the Lord returns, well, guess what? He's going to stop loving you. He's going to send you to hell. So the idea is that you can out-sin, you can outdo God's love by your sin and wickedness and lose your salvation. God will stop loving you. It's kind of like, uh, I, know I'm, I know I'm batting 100 here for all these movie references that just keep on coming. Um, you're like, this pastor watches a lot of movies. This is kind of awkward, you know? But it's like Ariel plucking flowers, right? If, if you're good, he loves me. If you're not good, he loves me not. That's the kind of view it is. But you see, Romans 8, 31 through 39 is that God's love will always be there for you. It is unconditional. We are not eternally insecure. We are eternally secure in the love of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this going verse by verse. Romans 8, 31 what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, first stop before you're like confused by this. What, what does he mean when he says, what then shall we say to these things? What are those things? What things he's referring to? Well, what we just read, our controversial uh, passage of scripture last Sunday is what he's referring to most likely. And when he says in Romans 8, 28 through 30, these are these things that he's referring to. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who is called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those are these things. And this is, you know, really amazing because it's saying, yeah, God is working all things for your good. He has made a plan to bestow his love and mercy on you. He's loved you from the beginning of the world to love and save you. You are as good as in heaven. Glorified here is used in the past tense. That refers to future heaven. It's used in the past tense, in the aorist in Greek. And so it's saying that you're as good as in heaven. If you trust in Jesus, your salvation is secure. So truly, yeah, God's love for you is everlasting. How can anybody really be against you? As Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Not a temporary love, an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So truly, yeah, if God has loved you from all eternity, he has a plan to save and, and to love you and bestow his grace upon you, how can anybody be against you? You're like, wait a minute, Paul. Wait just a second. Are you really saying that nobody is against Christians? Like he's kind of kind of Pollyanna kind of view there. Is he delusional or crazy or insane? Because, I mean, you look around, I mean, you might have a boss that wants to fire you. You may have people that don't like how you act and people that are conspiring against you or have, have, really hate you. It's like, come on, Paul, what's, what's going on here? How can you say that no one is against you? If God is for you, then who can be against you? Now, I can name, you might say, I can name five people just right now who I can think about who are against me in my life. And of course, not. he's not saying that people are not against you. Paul had plenty. He wasn't like a delusional kind of person because Paul had plenty of people against him. In fact, Paul is probably facing a situation right now worse than many of us are in terms of people being against us. I want us to read um, Acts 23 through 12 through 14. This is a really, this shows you Paul had a pretty bad life here. He had some people against him right here. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath 
neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders saying, we have strictly bound ourselves to an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. So if you ever feel like you're having a bad day or people don't like you, you can always remember, hey, you know, at least I didn't have 40 people starving themselves until they murdered me. You know, I mean, things might be kind of bad in your life, but let's just say, that is horrid, right? Like, I mean, I've, I've, I've had a few people not like me in my life, but man, it's never gotten to like, I'm not eating, I'm not tasting food or drink until I kill you. Like, that really is, I don't know how to describe those kind of intensity of feelings. That's something I've not really had. So, yeah, so yeah, Paul was no stranger to bad things happening to him, obviously, from the passage we just read. So then what could he mean when he says, since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what Paul is saying here is that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what, it is going to be worked out for your good and final, ultimate good, and that whatever happens to you in this life, that will never negate, cancel out, or rule out your salvation. So no matter what comes against you, it's, it's going to be overturned in the final analysis. And you will finally know Christ, or you, you, will, you will know Christ more fuller in heaven. You will have salvation. You are as good as in heaven. There's nothing that can happen to you. You know, death, sadness, loss, pain. Uh, loss of a job, loss of a spouse, whatever loss it is, nothing, no loss in your life, no bad thing that befalls you will ever negate or cancel out your salvation if you trust in Jesus Christ. He will hang on to you. And so Paul continues to comfort us in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul gives the best evidence for God's love for us, that God gave up his son. It wasn't the Romans that ultimately gave him up. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was ultimately God the Father who gave up his son to be crucified, to suffer on that brutal cross, to take the wrath of God. That is how much he loves us. It doesn't get really any better than that because God gave up his only son. We have everything we'll ever need in this life, truly need, not temporarily need, but truly need in this life and, of course, in the life to come. This is definitive proof that God loves us. He gave us Jesus. It's, it's a no-brainer, then, that He's going to have unconditional love for you, everlasting love and righteousness, the righteousness that Christ earned. And all things here, by the way, doesn't refer to, people say, all things. Okay, well, I better get my uh, Lexus, or uh, now people are into different cars. Um, uh, what's Elon Musk, what does he do? Tesla, there we go. How could I forget that? You know, all things, well, I I better get my Tesla. You know, I got to get my Mercedes Benz. My friends all have Porsches, but, uh, Porsches, but you know. So yeah, I got to get everything. A big house. All things here. Jesus is going to give me a lot of prosperity and money. You know, money comes to me. Come on, all things means all things here. Well, this is not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. Physical prosperity or material blessings. That's not what this is talking about. We know that. Because in Romans chapter 8, it's, it makes clear at the end of the verse that Christians are facing persecution and suffering and distress and sword and famine. The first century Christians were facing that. So to read this as, okay, well, if I name it and claim it, you know, then I'm just going to get whatever God says because he promised me all things. That's not what this is teaching. This is, this is referring to and pertaining to all things with regard to our final salvation, our salvation in Christ. 
So that is that acceptance, that eternal life, that forgiveness of sins. And if Jesus died for you, then he will give you all of your heart's desire, what your heart truly desires, not just things to fill your heart. And that is a profound comfort to us as Christians. Paul says in Romans 8, 33-34, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, God who declares righteous. And elect there means who shall bring any charge against God's chosen, could be translated in Greek, elect is chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. God is the ultimate, greatest, final authority. So if God, the entire, you know, the greatest, the greatest being in the universe, if he declares you righteous, he's the, he's the ultimate supreme court. Who else can condemn you? So there can be no, I mean, yeah, you might have people like saying, oh, you're not saved, you're not a Christian. People can say that to you, sure. But that charge, that accusation will not stick. There can be no legitimate charge against you as a Christian because it's already been cleared by the highest authority. God is the greatest. If he says you're forgiven, declared righteous in Christ, who can dispute him? The matter is finished. It is closed. So even though you have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and never kept any of them perfectly, God, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you by faith alone, can never, ever condemn you. Satan can't legitimately condemn you. And you cannot legitimately condemn yourself. I realize... Some people say, you know, I just can't forgive myself for doing this or messing up here, screwing this up. Well, I'm sorry. You're not greater than the ultimate final court. And you're not more reliable than God. And so if you doubt the forgiveness that is, that is given to you in Christ, you, what you're doing, and people don't realize this, I realize when they say they can't forgive themselves, they're doubting the power of the work of Christ. They're doubting the power of the cross. Jesus' work is greater than your sinful work. He has cleared you. He has forgiven you. He has justified you, vindicated you, accepted you, and affirmed you. And there, you have no right to doubt him. I have no right to doubt him, even though I do myself. So we must forgive ourselves and live as free people, free from prison. Notice here, it says Jesus is God, and he's, he is constantly praying for you. He is praying for you even as you sin and mess up. That's what interceding means. He is praying and pleading for you. And according to the book of Hebrews, yeah, that's what it is. He's praying. That's what interceding means. He is praying for your salvation. And if Jesus Christ is praying for you, well, you can never lose your salvation. Satan can never have you. And we know this from Scripture. There's no way your, your guilt is greater than God no matter what you've done. This is what he says about Jesus and the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, denied Jesus three times, and in the book of Galatians, he denies the gospel. Not a good guy, because none of us are good. We all need Christ. This is what Jesus says to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So if Jesus is praying for you, as it says here in Romans 8, he's praying and interceding for all believers. So if you trust in him, your faith will never fail. God will preserve you until the end. We are secure in 
our salvation, not because we hold and cling tightly onto Jesus, but because he holds and clings tightly onto us. And we have to be reminded of that over and over and over again because we so often, myself included, all the time feel so sinful and so guilty and so unworthy like God could never love us. We are worthy in Christ, not by our own worth, but by his worth bought and earned for us. And we have the thought and we have, we have thoughts like this. And these thoughts are not from God. They are from Satan. They are from devil. By the way, the Greek word devil is diabolos and it means accuser. It means slanderer. And the book of Revelation chapter 13 says that Satan accuses Christians day and night. That's what he does. Satan uses it in our hearts to accuse ourselves. Well, you've done that. God could never love you. God can't forgive you of that. You're, you're too far gone. And Satan has been accusing us from the moment we were made that God does not love us. That is a lie from hell. And the problem is we, as human beings, we struggle with this. We struggle with believing that God really loves us. In fact, I was looking at this uh, New York Times article entitled Googling God. The third most Googled question about God that people ask, they type into Google, they did a survey, is why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? So I think our conscience and Satan has done a pretty good job convincing us that God doesn't love us. That's what he's been doing from the beginning is convincing us that, that our sin makes us so that God could never love us and that we need to look for other things. You know, don't, don't step into a church. Don't read your Bible. Don't evangelize. You're, you're, God can't forgive you. You're, 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 you're as good as condemned. There's nothing you can do. And ironically, the best book that summarizes this reality, I've read this before, is uh, my daughter's book that I read to her um, called the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's, it's amazing how simple a child's book can capture this reality. Um, and this section is called The Great Lie. I'm going to read this. It says, this is my daughter's children's book. I know we're, we're going really high level here. Right? But this is really amazing and profound stuff. The simplest things can be said in such an impactful way. As soon as a snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve, said, does God really love you? The serpent whispered, if he does, why won't he let you have this nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you, perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. You'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And so this is how Satan deceives us. He accuses us. He tells us, oh, well, I'm too bad. I've heard someone say this. I was watching a video and guys like, I can't go to church. If I walk into a church, it's going to be like a thunderbolt, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be really bad, you know, kind of like a Johnny Cash. God's going to cut you down if you go into church. That's, what, that's, that's a lie from Satan. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
tells us things like, oh, you know, everybody's, you know, all this stuff that's going on in your life that's really bad. You know, the reason why all this stuff's happening to you that's difficult right now in your life, you know, Satan will say, oh, that's because, you know, when you were a young adult or a teenager, you did all this bad stuff and it's finally catching up to you. God's going to cut you down kind of thing. But whenever your conscience and Satan uses that to throw your sin and your guilt and shame in your face, to tell you constantly you're unworthy, God could never love you, God's going to punish you, he hates you, he's going to kill you, you can say, no, someone's already been punished and condemned in my place. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He already took the judgment for you, so there is no more judgment left over. There is no double jeopardy in God's court. It's already been taken care of. It's already been paid for. I just love how the great reformer Martin Luther put it. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. So we have nothing to fear for those who trust in Jesus Christ. God's love is truly unconditional. It is unconditional because it's conditioned on the perfect obedience and righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ. It's conditioned on the work of Christ, which is perfect and infinite and in our place. So we have what we receive is nothing but unconditional love from God by his sacrificial death. This is how Paul describes the implication of this beautiful reality and the most beautiful words written in the entire, in my opinion, in the entire New Testament to describe the depths of God's rich, unconditional love for us. Truly, this is good news. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered citing the psalms there about israel being persecuted by enemies so they were experiencing persecution but it says in verse 37 no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us we're not just conquerors we're more than we're, we're more than conquerors because in this life as we are fighting to go to the final battle we are still praising because it is finished praising god more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this passage is just so beautiful. I love it so much. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of Jesus. Now, I've heard people say this before. Well, yeah, that's true, Nate, you know, that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of Jesus. But you know what, Nate? You can still separate yourself from the love of Jesus. I've heard people say this many times. I had a guy who said this to me in seminary. But what Paul says here doesn't allow that. Because we, I hate to break it to you, I mean, it's pretty obvious. We're, we're part of creation, aren't we? Yeah, we're part of creation. So we can't even separate ourselves from the love of Jesus. Look at the points I have on just to clarify the, the structure of this. One, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Jesus. I want to make this clear. Two, we are a part of creation. Pretty obvious. So we cannot even separate ourselves from the love of Jesus. 
So that means that you cannot, I always say this all the time, you can't out-sin the coverage of God's grace. I've said that many times. You might, where's that from the Bible? It's from here. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do to out-sin God's love for you. You can't exhaust his grace. You can't exhaust his love and say, okay, that one, you know, Nate, he really, you really got mad on the 15 freeway. You really lost your temper there with Laura and the kids. All right, I'm done with this guy. Later on. That can never happen. That can never, ever happen. You cannot outsin the coverage, the mercy of God's grace. You can't keep God from stop loving. If you trust in Christ this morning, there is nothing you can do to get God to stop loving you. It's like hard to believe it's so good, but that is the truth of God's word. He will never grow tired of you. He'll never say he's had it with you like people do. And what's amazing is he knows your thoughts. If people knew your thoughts, you'd be surprised how conditional their love would be for you. Let's be honest about that. He knows your thoughts and he can't stop loving you. That is incredible. He loves you for you, not what you can do, but he loves you. Now, some people say this, well, let's go to Vegas and party, right? You know, if you believe in eternal security, then you can just do whatever you want and be saved, right? That's, Nate, you're giving people an open license just to sin it up. The fear that people have is that if God is, has this kind of amazing love for us, then, and you really can't lose it, then you can murder, lie, cheat, and steal, do all you want, and go to heaven. You know, you got to keep people good, Nate. You got to lay down the law and tell them hey, if, if they're not acting good before Jesus comes back, you got to do that. The fear here is that you can tell that there would be no incentive to be good, holy, to follow Christ if you can't lose your salvation. But what people don't realize when they're saying this is that if you experience... If you understand emotionally and experience it psychologically and you understand what Jesus has done for you, you experience his unconditional, unending, perfect love for you, your deepest desires being fulfilled, then you're not going to want to live in open sin and rebellion, unrepentant sin against God. Yeah, you will sin, by the way. We sin every day. But you will deeply hate your sin. And you will want to work from turning against. You want to turn against your sin. You want to turn against your rebellion. You won't want to live in rebellion. You see, when you experience the perfect, everlasting, unconditional love of God, it just can't help but change your life around. It just can't help but transform you. Why is this? Because when God gives you the unfailing love and acceptance that satisfies your soul, your deepest desires, your longings, you just can't help but treat people differently. You just can't help but be a different person that shows love and mercy and care to others because God has satisfied your soul. You see, when you realize that you have everything you already need is already in Jesus by his sacrifice, you don't need to be satisfied by sin and rebellion anymore because Jesus transforms you. There's something about Jesus, his amazing love that just satisfies you more. You don't need to be satisfied by a thousand lesser things other than Jesus anymore. And so when you experience this unconditional, amazing, incomprehensible love of Christ, it makes you want to love Jesus more. It makes you want to be like Christ and follow Christ and transform your, have Jesus transform your life. So for all those people who have said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and they, they don't live any differently from the world. If people ask, say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't, they don't take God seriously. They don't love Christ. They don't revere His Word. They don't care about other people. 
they live in unrepentant sin and rebellion. If people say, oh yeah, I believe I'm a Christian. I, I, yeah, sure, God loves me. If people say that, the fact is those people never had this unfailing, never experienced or understood this unfailing, unconditional of love, love of God in the first place because they never had it. They never had it to begin with. They never truly trusted in Christ for their salvation, for the forgiveness of all of their sins. Because when you understand how kind and merciful and amazing and unconditional love is, it just changes you. I love the way Spurgeon put it well when he said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. Right? You got as an angry dictator that hates you. I don't want to follow that guy. Forget that guy. I'm going to do whatever I want. That guy's, God's terrible. But he says, but when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smite the breast that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. See, it changes you, it melts your heart, and it makes you want to serve and follow Jesus all the more when you experience that, that grace. And his love, the love of God is perfect. And if a perfect love does not transform you, then it's not a perfect love. You've never received it. So God's love, if you receive it, is a perfect love, and it is perfect. So by definition, it brings change. It brings transformation. And because we desperately were set up this way by God to need him. God made us to only be satisfied by this perfect love that can truly satisfy us. Nothing in the world can satisfy us. And so as, as long as you live in your life turning from Christ, you will never be satisfied. You will always try to fill and fill and fill. I know this from experience because I wasn't always a Christian. And believe me, I tried to find satisfaction in worldly things. It never truly satisfied me. It made me more depressed, more anxious. I had a deep, dark hole down the middle of me. My experience as a non-Christian was very much like that of the um, atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell. Just this restless emptiness, this pain down the middle of me. I love how he describes it here. He says, the center of me is always, this guy is not a Christian, he's an atheist. The center of me is always this eternal, always an eternally a terrible pain. A curious and wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains. A searching for something beyond what the world can, contains. Something transfigured and inf infinite. The beatific vision, God, I do not find, I do not think, is to be found. It's amazing that these are the words of an atheist saying that he desperately needs God. An atheist admitting this, but I, he doesn't think God exists. This need from God doesn't come from evolution. It doesn't come from nature. It comes from God himself. He created us to be in relationship with him. He created us to need him, to need his unchanging, unconditional love that we so desperately need. And that's why I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis again to say he really had the best explanation of this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so if you are hurting this morning and you are filled with pain and emptiness as I was as an unbeliever, then come to Jesus and have your cup overflow with satisfaction in His love, mercy, and grace. And you will finally find rest for your soul that the world can never give you. So trust in Jesus. Have eternal life. The forgiveness of your sins in Jesus this morning. Amen. Let's pray.